And we're going to kind of do a word association thing. I'm going to have Drew put up the uh, image on the screen. And you tell me the characteristics that the artist seemed to be trying to convey. I don't care if it's right or wrong. It's just what you see it. And, and you just tell me what those characteristics are. All right, you ready? Here's the first one. When you see that picture, what do you think of Jesus? Solemn? Is that what you said? Solemn. Um, what? Peaceful. peaceful. Jesus was solemn. He was peaceful. Holy. Holy. Okay, that's a good one. Reverent. reverent. Not reverend, but you could call him reverend. Reverent. Yeah, reverent. Okay. Here's the next one. What do you think he's trying to convey? Concern. I like the blue eyes. I kind of figure Jewish, Middle Eastern man probably didn't have blue eyes. Um, I'm thinking maybe somebody that did this is trying to, you know, say he was Caucasian or something. I, I don't think that was the case. You know, he's, he's Jewish, but he's concerned. Serious. Serious. All right, next one. What in the world? What is that thing around his head? It's a halo. What, is that, what does that symbolize in, in the stained glass? Holiness, Holiness yeah. That, that he was God's son. And he's got the kids around him. That's good. So what, what is this conveying to you besides holiness? Loving. Loving. Jesus loves kids. Sovereignty. Sovereignty. That's a big word. Three dollar word. Meaning he's, he's in control of everything. All right, here's another one. <laughs> this is the baby Jesus, and that's his mama. She got the halo too, and I'm thinking, how do you get one of those? I'm thinking, was he born with that thing? I mean, surely he didn't come out of the womb with that thing going on. It's only half grown right now. It's only half grown, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, the other half of it, yeah, is behind Mary, and he, maybe he had to borrow part of hers. I don't know. Um, but this is Mary, and, and the image here is that not only was Jesus holy, but Mary was holy, right? So there's all kinds of things that have come down through the ages through art. We got another one? What in the world is this? It's the halo thing, with clover leaf halo is what that looks like to me. And then the burning heart. The, the, uh, the heading on it on the internet was the sacred heart of Jesus. What does that mean? He is doing Scout's Honor. Yeah? Now, <laughs> okay, he opens his heart to all of us. Okay, okay. See, here's the deal. Here's the problem with these images. We don't know exactly. We got one more? One more? Now, that's Jewish there. That's Jewish. If you go on the web, you can find any color Jesus you want to find. I found them. From, from the whitest white to the blackest black, you can find it. But this one seems Jewish, yeah, because he's got the Hebrew down there and, and uh, he's, he's teaching from it. Okay, the problem is we, we don't have these artists around, so we can't go and say, what were you trying to convey? And even if we did, what if what they're trying to convey isn't really what Jesus was like? See, the Bible paints this picture, but a lot of people, if you go up and ask them, what do you think of Jesus? Some people say, I don't. Or if you say, well, if you did, what would you think Jesus was like? And what do you think people would say? Loving. 
kind, nice. But if they were really honest, they'd say nice but boring. And you know why they think that? Because all the Christians they know are nice but boring. Right? I mean, y'all are laughing. I'm not boring. Well, here's what I'm trying to get at. People, people have a, a, a misguided image of Jesus because Christians have portrayed Him in the wrong way. Because you think about it. If you go out and ask people, what do you think of church people? People who claim to be followers of Christ. You know what you'll hear? Boring, uptight, judgmental, hypocritical. Maybe nice, but boring. And that's not who Jesus was. Um, Today we're starting this new series and we're going to try to paint an accurate picture of who Jesus was, but also who he is today. And I hope that you're going to leave here with a new appreciation for who Jesus is. And every week we've come across some videos and these are some great videos about misconceptions about who Jesus is. So um, just know that you could never show these videos in a traditional church. All right, I'm just going to give you that up front. What I want you to do is I want you to watch this. Each week for the next four weeks, we'll have a different video about what common misconceptions of Jesus. And I want you to watch this one and try to figure out the misconception that is being... I think you won't have any trouble figuring out the misconception being conveyed. I am walking in the dirt. Hey, Peter, Peter. I am walking in the dirt. And the rocks, and the... Huh? There's Jesus. Huh? Jesus isn't a rock. Hey, Andrew. Oh, man. Andrew is my friend. Andrew. This way. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Hey, Jesus. Hello, my son. Have a seat. Hey, Jesus. I was just sitting here with my stick, enjoying the sun shine. Jesus, I thought we were playing hide-and-seek, and you weren't hiding. No, Peter, I wasn't playing hide-and-seek. I only told you that, so you would leave me alone. You see, I'm Jesus. I'm an important guy. I have important things, heavenly things to think about. You're always bothering me with your problems, and this guy's talking about what he wants for Christmas, and... But Jesus, I thought you are our friend. I am your friend, I just don't have time for you. Oh, man. (laughs) I am your friend, I just don't have time for you. I've been singing this stupid song all week. I am walking in the dirt. (laughs) Um... Now, the, the misconception is that, yeah, Jesus likes us, but he's, he's got so much other stuff on his mind. Running the universe is a big job, and so he really doesn't have time for us. A lot of people believe that God created the earth, and then he just kind of removed himself from the earth and is letting us do our own thing, and maybe he'll intervene sometimes, maybe he won't, but that he's just got too much going on. And nothing could be further from the truth. What I want you to see today is Jesus wasn't just a nice guy. Jesus was, um, he was a thrill seeker. Jesus was a risk taker. 
And the greatest thrill he gets in life is when a seeker comes to find him. The Bible says in the Old Testament, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. The greatest thrill Jesus could ever have is for a lost person to come to him. And so what we're going to look at today is we're going to look at the risks that Jesus took so that he could have a friendship with you. He laid it all on the line so that he could be your friend. He's not too busy for you, just the opposite. Look at what it says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before God made anything at all and is supreme over all creation. Christ is the one through whom God created everything in heaven and earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see. Kings, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities. Everything has been created through Him and for Him. He existed before everything else began, and He holds all creation together. Go back to the first part of that. Uh, Drew, would you put that back up there? Look at the very first part. Christ is the visible image of what? The invisible God. You want to know what God's like? The Bible says you look at Jesus, you figure out what He's like, you've got a representation of who God was like. And so here's, here's the first risk. Think about the risks as we, as we go through this. The risk that Jesus had to take. The creator of the universe, the one in whom everything is held together, everything was created through Him. It says that He willingly gave all of that up to put on the restrictions of flesh. And not only that, he put on the flesh of a baby. He didn't come as a full-grown man. He came as a baby. And, and when I think about that, especially this time of year, Christmas time, Jesus laying in a manger, the God of the universe unable to control his bladder. The God of the universe totally dependent on a teenage girl and her carpenter husband to protect him, to feed him, to provide for him, to teach him how to do right and wrong, and all of this stuff. God of the universe comes down and risks all of that to put himself in flesh? Doesn't make sense to me. It wouldn't have been my plan. That's why you're glad God's God and not me. And see, I don't, I don't understand this whole deal, because if you've heard the omni-words, omnipresent, omniscient, um, omnipotent, omni means all at once. So if you're omnipresent, which God is, that's one of His characteristics, He can be everywhere all at once. Jesus limited His omnipresence to one place. Can you be in two places at one time when you're a physical human being? No, you can't. So Jesus gave all of that up. He gave up, He limited His power. Omnipotent means all-powerful. He limited His power so that He could become flesh, so that He could become obedient. The Bible says that He learned obedience through suffering. The God of the universe suffered. Why? So that you and I could have a relationship with Him. But the risks don't stop there. Think about this. Jesus came as a Jew, and who was in charge of the known world at that time? Caesar. The Romans. Were they good guys? Were they nice but boring guys? No, you could be killed for being a Jew just because you were a Jew. In fact, when Herod, when the wise men came to Herod and said, we have come to worship him who's been born king of the Jews, could you point us the way? How did Herod react? He totally wigged out because he was worried about his throne and his legacy. We studied that last Christmas. He was worried about all of that. And so what did he do? He found out that, that the, the king of the Jews had been born in Bethlehem. So he sent out his soldiers, figured out all of this time, and he killed every male baby, two years old and younger, because he, he couldn't stand the threat of someone who might even be called king of the Jews because he was king. That seems kind of risky to me for God to be put in that type of situation. 
And I was trying to get my mind around what God did, the amount of sacrifice God did in sending His only Son. And, and the closest thing I could come up with is it'd be like me taking my 12-year-old son, my only son, Caleb, taking him to downtown Dallas or downtown Houston about 2 o'clock in the morning and saying to my son, here you go, bud. I drop him off on I-45 right as it comes into downtown Dallas or downtown Houston, drop him off and I say, here's, here's your job. Your job is to go find prostitutes, pimps, drug dealers, murderers, child molesters. Go into the inner city by yourself, gather them up, and tell them about God. And have a good time. I won't be with you physically, but I'll be with you in spirit. By the way, if somebody ever tells you, I'm there in spirit, no, you're not. (laughs) That means you're not there at all. But here's the deal. God sent His Son, and His Son came and and risked everything so that you and I might have some way to God. And and do you begin to sense the risk that Jesus took? But, But it doesn't stop there. The risk continues. Because then, what does He do? He gathers around Him 12 religious rejects. Now, you know how I know they were rejects? Because when you got to be a certain age, you were tested in your Bible knowledge. They, they, most of them had the Old Testament memorized by the time they were teenagers. I mean, all of that memorized so they could just spit it out at any time. And they were tested by the rabbis. And the ones who showed the most promise were put into the rabbinic schools. And they became the scribes and Pharisees that you read about all in the New Testament. Scribes and Pharisees that, that gave Jesus a hard time. These other guys were rejected by the rabbinic schools, and so they had to find other things to do. They became fishermen. They became tax collectors. They were rejects. And Jesus gathers these dudes around, spends three years of his life, and by the way, for 30 years, he doesn't do anything, or so it doesn't seem. We don't have it in the Bible. At age 12, you know, he goes to the temple, and his mom and dad are worried that he's gone. He says, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? For the next 18 years, we have nothing about his life. And then at 30, he bursts on the scene... He gathers these 12 rejects around him. He spends three years pouring his life into them. And then, after he's he's crucified on the cross, raised from the dead, he comes back to meet them and he says, Okay, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, you spiritual rejects. I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want you to teach them everything I've commanded you. And oh, by the way, I'll be with you in spirit. Now, how come he could say, I'll be with you in spirit, and it'd be different than you say, I'm with you in spirit? Because he had the third part of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He said, when I go, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to indwell those people who are my followers. I will be with you, and I'll remind you of everything I've taught you. And so he took this risk, and then he left it to 12 stupid men. The hope of the world, he left to 12 stupid men. And, and if, if being a stupid man is a qualification for, for leading a church, then I'm fully qualified to lead this church because I'm a stupid man. And you're pretty stupid too. Right? Can you believe Jesus left the hope of the world to human beings? Imperfect, infallible, not infallible, fallible. He was infallible. Fallible human beings. He left the hope of the world to us. And man, have we jacked it up. Unbelievable risk he took. And this was plan A. There's no plan B. There's no plan C. This is it. God gave this all up. And, and 
Guys, do you remember when you were dating? Some of you are still dating. Do you remember what it was like to call a girl or to go up to her the first time to ask her out? For me, I would generally ask out girls that I had a reasonable chance of success, of, you know, reasonable expectation that they would say yes. I don't know any guys that would go up to a girl that they know would say no. I like being rejected. Check this out. I don't know any guys like that. But here's what Jesus did. Look at Romans 5, 8. But God put His love on the line for us by offering His Son in sacrificial death while we were of no use to Him whatsoever. Jesus risked rejection by dying on the cross. And and here's what He did. He went to people that He knew would say no. And He asked them out. That's some risk. God of the universe gave us a choice. That's pretty risky. And and we have another picture here. This is Jesus as the shepherd. Would you say that's kind of risky? You see, He's leaning over the cliff. Jesus is the shepherd and and we're the sheep. And, And I think He chose sheep on purpose because sheep were pretty dumb animals. They're pretty helpless. And Jesus risks reaching out to dying people. That's you on the ledge. That's your mom, your dad, your children, your neighbors, your best friends. That's you on the ledge. Jesus risks it all by reaching out to you, and He knows some of you and some of your relatives are going to say no. That's risk that Jesus took. And uh, if you have your Bibles, would you turn to John chapter 1? Because we're going to talk about Jesus coming to earth and what He did in this risk thing. And I want you to get your mind around this. John chapter 1. There are four books in the New Testament called Gospels, and that means good news. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John's the fourth one. So if you find any of those, just keep hanging a right till you come to John. If you get to Acts, you've gone too far, then hang a left. Now, John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 says, But although the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him when he came. Even in his own land and among his own people, he was not accepted. Now, if he was omniscient, one of those omni words, that means if he knows everything, surely he knew coming to earth that people would reject him. Surely he knew that. So why did he do it? Well, this is on your listening guide. He did it for the sake of relationship. Jesus risked everything for relationship. And so if people tell you that you have to follow religion to get to God, you say, no, 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 no. Jesus did not die for religion. Jesus died for relationship. There is a huge, huge difference. And and look down in John. This is where we continue in, in verses 12 and 13. But to all who believed Him and accepted Him, He gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn. This is not a physical birth resulting from some human passion or plan. This rebirth comes from God. God knew that left to ourselves we would die, so He risked everything to reach out. And this offer of salvation is extended to everyone, but the only ones who get saved and get to go into heaven are the ones who reach out and accept His hand. There's not many roads to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Jesus, the founder of our religion, said there's one way, and it's to accept My hand. You have the choice to reject it, and if you reject it, you're on your own. That's risky 
to give humans choice. So don't you ever think that Jesus is too busy for us, like we saw in the video. He's playing hide-and-seek. He's trying to make it difficult for you to find Him. No. He risks it all for you. And then if you look in John chapter 15, verse 13, it says, it says, here's how we can measure love. The Bible says that you can measure someone's love. You can know whether someone loves you by how much they sacrifice for you. Here it is. Here's how to measure it. The greatest love is shown when people lay down their lives for their friends. You can measure how much you love somebody by how much you will sacrifice for them. Now, I've heard people say for years, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. Jesus is my friend. Uh, Well, I've got some questions for you. How much have you ever given to Him? Because, see, the Bible says that um, even the demons believe in God and they shudder in fear. So head knowledge will not get you to heaven. It's who controls your heart. So if you love Jesus, you've got to give Him your heart. You've got to give Him the throne of your life. That costs you something. That's pretty risky. Head knowledge won't get you into heaven. It's, it's who possesses your heart. I've heard people say, oh, I love my church. Oh, really? How much time do you give to your church? How much time do you spend praying for your church? How much time do you spend serving in your church? How much money do you give to your church? You can measure someone's love by the amount of sacrifice they are willing to give on behalf of that other person or that other object. So that's risk. And Jesus was a risk taker. He sacrificed it all. And because He was a risk taker, guess what? He's called us to be risk takers. Specifically, He wants us to risk everything for relationship. And I want to talk about three different types of relationships. The first thing He wants us to risk is a relationship in the church. This is on your listening guide. Jesus died for individuals, but He called all of those individuals to get together on a regular basis in something called the church. There wasn't a church in the Old Testament. That was synagogues. In the New Testament, it was first called church in the book of Acts. A church is the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And He calls us to be involved in a local church. 98% of the time in the New Testament, when you see the word church, it's referring to a local body of believers. God calls you to be connected to that. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian in the Bible. There's no such thing as spiritual orphans. God expects you to be a part of His family, and He expects you to get together regularly with people in something called the church. Don't ever make the mistake of saying you love Christ, but you hate the church. That is a spiritual impossibility. Jesus risked it and He wants us to risk it. Second thing, second group that He wants us to risk for is small groups. You can worship in a crowd, but you cannot fellowship in this crowd. You can come and you can sing the songs and you can pray and you can give to the joy basket at the back. You can turn in your little... Oh, somebody almost did it. Joy basket, yeah. We'll give you a better chance in a minute. But you cannot... you You can do all of that and leave here and be totally anonymous. No one can know if your life is falling apart. You can walk in here, how are you doing? I'm fine. And on the inside, you're dying, your heart's breaking. You can pretend in a crowd, but you get into a small group and you're sitting in somebody's living room and you begin discussing things and you say, hey, let's have some prayer concerns and you get to know one another, you cannot hide in a small group. 
And that's why God wants us to be in, in a small group type fellowship. And that's why we believe life change happens in small groups. It doesn't happen in the big church. Every week I give you an opportunity to write something down, you know, something that, that you've learned. No one ever knows whether you follow through on those commitments. You get in a small group and you get a group of people praying for you and you say, hey, I made this commitment today. Would you guys pray for me and, and hold me accountable? That's when people learn. And that's when you decide that you're going to be serious about it and you put your life on the line with some other people. We believe life change happens best in small groups. If you're not in small group, then my guess is not much life change is happening for you. And that's a choice you have to make. God designed you with a desire to know other people and to be known. I've said for years that the loneliest people I know are people who are in a marriage where there's no love. It's better to be single and lonely than to be married and lonely. Married and lonely is a bad deal. The loneliest individuals I know are Christians who are not plugged into a local church. And they're not in small groups. Um, if you could ever get through the layers of their heart, you'd find out that, that they're lonely people. And then there's a third relationship that God wants us to sacrifice and risk for, and that's the lost. Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man came to find lost people and save them. Now, this is Jesus speaking. He called Himself the Son of Man because in the Old Testament, that's... that's uh, that referred to the Messiah. And Jesus was talking to Jews, and so they had it memorized. They knew when He said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save, they knew He was claiming to be the Son of Man, the Messiah, and they understood Him to say, I'm God's Son. That's why the religious leaders got so upset and wanted to kill Him, because He clearly claimed to be the Son of God, and it ticked them off. They were trying to protect God from His own Son. What an irony. Jesus came to sacrifice, and, and there's actually five purposes. If you've ever read um, Purpose Driven Life, you've got these five purposes. But, but Jesus sacrificed so that we could worship, fellowship, disciple, evangelize, and minister. Evangelism is the one where you tell other people about Christ. And that's the one we seem to fear the most, and, and we'll talk about that in just a second. If Jesus went out on a ledge to rescue me, he expects me to go out on a ledge to reach other people who are far from God. That's not an option. Now, some of you are thinking, well, I can't do it. What you're asking is too much. I can't give money. I can't give time. I can't tell people about Jesus. You're asking too much. Well, it's not me. It's the God of the universe that's expecting you to do it if you're going to call Him your Savior, your Lord. So let me ask you just a few questions to wrap up our, our kind of talk here on, on uh, risk. And let's do a risk assessment for your life, for your faith life. And the questions you've got on your listening guide, but let me, let me expand them just a little bit. What is your faith costing you? We have it so easy in East Texas. A lot of people in the world that claim to follow Christ, it could cost them their lives. They could be killed. People are martyred all around the world. In fact, there are more people martyred today than there were back in Jesus' day for, for saying they believe in Jesus. doesn't happen in the United States yet. If we live long enough, we may see it somewhere down the road. You see people becoming more and more hostile towards Christians. But it doesn't cost us anything. We have air-conditioned Christians. If, if it's convenient, I'll do it. If not... No, don't expect me to do anything. 
Um, the problems in the, in the rest of the world are matters of survival. The problems in East Texas are matters of convenience when it comes to following Christ. Second question. At what cost would you stay faithful to God, to Christ? What could cause you to deny your faith? See, we don't face persecution here. We face this convenience thing. And I heard about a pastor who said, um, this was on tape, he said, I'd like to commend you for being brave enough to face the rain and come to church today. Think about the sheer stupidity of that statement. Now, every church I've ever been in, except this one, if it rained, you could mark it down. And we used to, on our, on our attendance sheets from year to year, cloudy and cold. I mean, it's like we were the meteorologists. Cloudy and cold, that's why we had 30% less. If it rained, you could go anywhere from 30 to 50% less people would be in church that day. And, and every once in a while, that old mindset creeps in because last week we had Thanksgiving and we had rain. So you know what I prayed on Saturday night? Oh, God, let somebody show up tomorrow. I did. I'm, I'm laying in bed holding Janie's hand and I said, I said, God, you know, I've come through this and a lot of times people just don't show up. We got a holiday and it's cold and it's raining. And so when people started showing up, I was going, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. It doesn't seem to affect us. Because think about that. What it means, if it's raining, for most of us, it means we might walk out into our driveway 15 or 20 feet in the rain and get into our car, our motorized vehicle, turn on the heater and the windshield wipers. We had this discussion this morning. What if we didn't have windshield wipers? (laughs) I guess we wouldn't drive very far in the rain. But you turn on the windshield wipers and you go to church. Then, in most churches, you walk 30 or 40 feet in the rain. Here you walk about 600 feet in the rain. But, you know, we're working on that. When we get in the new building, it won't be so bad. We'll actually have a covered drop-off area where you can come right up and push them out. You know, if you want to do it while you're still rolling, if you're in a hurry, you can do that in our new building. But here, you got to walk a ways. So you got... I just commend you... For, for coming rain or shine. But how stupid to say, oh, you braved the rain today. What righteous people. That's just foolishness. Now, the third thing. How many people know you're a Christian? All right, let's, let's talk about this. How many people at work know that you follow Christ? I don't mean they know you go to church. That doesn't count. They know that you openly follow Christ. How many people know that? I don't know. My life is my witness. Do you realize how arrogant that is? If Jesus Christ's life was not enough of a witness, He had to tell people, I'm the only way, come to the Father through me. He spoke it. How arrogant is it for us to say, oh, I don't have, I don't tell people about Jesus. I just live such a holy life in front of them that they're going to fall down and say, please tell me about your God. That's foolishness. I'm talking about how many people know you believe that that baby that that was born and placed in a manger was God's Son. That you believe He risked it all to reach out to you, that He died for you, but He also died for everybody else in the world. You see, we are not concerned about lost people. In the next 24 hours, 176,000 people will die and go to hell. 
And, and we're saying, well, it's none of my business. Do you know what we think about people if they were walking by a burning house and there were people in there burning? If they just kept on walking or kept on driving, didn't even bother to call 911, you know what we would say about those people? See, when I see the reality of the situation, if someone's burning in a house, I'm probably going to throw all caution to the wind. And I'm going to go racing in there and try to drag people out. Because all of a sudden, when I see the consequences, I no longer think, well, it's none of my business. All I want to do is save them. And part of our problem is we have forgotten that the person who told us about hell is the same person who told us about heaven, Jesus Christ. In America, like 85% of people believe in heaven, but only 30% believe in hell. And I'm going, the source of both of those ideas was Jesus. So you're going to believe one thing Jesus said and not believe another thing. Just because you ignore hell doesn't mean that it's not there. And the only way to get to heaven, the only way to make sure that you don't go to hell or that your friends, your neighbors don't go to hell is to tell them that Jesus is reaching out and maybe you have to be the one to establish a relationship and reach out to them to show them how they can get to heaven. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. And so God calls us to risk as well. And, and part of the reason we don't risk is because I think we have this, this image or this comfort zone that we want to stay in and, and we want everybody to like us. And the only way to get everybody to like you is to be a chameleon and try to, to blend in and do everything they want you to do, which is totally foolish and you'll be frustrated. God allows us to have pain and suffering in our lives. There is nothing in this Bible that says, come to Christ and all your problems will go away. Give a hundred bucks and you'll get ten thousand bucks. You'll drive a Lexus. You'll have a 5,500 square foot house with a pool and hot tub in the back. Give a little more and you might get an indoor basketball court. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible actually says if you follow Christ, you will suffer. Oh, well, that sounds fun. Why would I want to do that? Well, here's the deal. God allows us to feel pain and, and suffering in this life, I believe, because He doesn't want us to get attached to this life. This life is not our final destination. We have another place that's our permanent home, and that's called heaven. And we'll have happy moments here, but nothing compared to what we'll have in heaven. And, and I guess that's why I like the story of the missionary who was coming back from Africa years and years ago uh, at the end of World War II. He was, he was flying home, and he happened to be flying home on the same plane that Eisenhower was coming home on after World War II. And this guy had spent 60 years in Africa, moved his wife and his family to Africa, lost his wife and family, the entire family, to malaria. They all died in Africa. 60 years, no friends, no relatives, nobody in the United States had a clue what he'd been doing for the last 60 years. Nobody knew. And when they land in New York City... There's this huge crowd, banners, welcome home, Ike. There's the band playing and people are shouting, confetti's flying. But then when the missionary comes off the plane, nothing. Not one person to welcome him home. And he says it was as if Satan tapped him on the shoulder and said, you gave your whole life for nothing. You're worthless. And he began to feel discouraged. He began to feel depressed. And he said, 
I said, how come no one's here to welcome me home? And then he said it was like God tapped him on the shoulder and said, it's because you're not home yet. There's going to be a time when you, if you're a follower of Christ, will descend into the ramp of the holy city of God. You'll see people who are believers who have died and gone on before you. You'll be reunited with those folks. You'll have incredible celebration. And maybe, just maybe, at the back of the crowd, as you enter that incredible, indescribable city, the one who would rather die for you than live without you will remove his nail-scarred hands from his robe and he'll applaud because you finally made it home. There'll be a raucous celebration then, but this world is not your final home. You won't be in heaven five minutes before you say, oh, why didn't I give more? Why didn't I sacrifice more? Why didn't I risk more? Why didn't I tell more people about Jesus? Oh, why? God wants you to feel pain and suffering now so that you don't get attached to this place and you'll remember that you have an ultimate home. I don't want you to waste your life on things that don't matter. And so I want to ask you to plug in to the only thing I know of that matters for all eternity. That's the family of God. If you have your registration cards, would you take those for just a moment? Fill out the front. If you've been here before, just put your name and the date on there. If you have a new email address, put that on there. We, we uh, go through those 